0: to the book of 1st Peter we'll continue our trek rejoicing in your salvation it's the title for this sermon rejoicing in your salvation we we do have a blessed salvation and it is worthy to rejoice over for there's there's much joy to be found within it what has salvation become in our culture what does what does it mean to us what does your salvation mean to you there are preachers out there who will say that salvation means the capacity to be healthy wealthy and happy there are some preachers who will say that salvation is the condition upon which you can decree and declare your desires into reality. Where, where God, because you're a Christian, you can now realize your dreams and what you imagine to be your purpose. Many of these false, false faiths, what they do is they turn God into a cosmic genie who is bound to your bidding just because you've rubbed the lamp of religiosity In so many ways God has been reshaped into a being of man's own making and consequently man has exalted himself, the center of the universe, as the center of history. I think with this loss of appropriately attributing God's position and his preeminence, there's been an exaggeration on man's position and man's place in the world i mean really ever since the enlightenment about 4 centuries ago we have philosophically traded positions with god and man has declared himself to be the judges of reality the judges of morality and has made remade god in his own image being absolutely anything but what he reveals himself to be in the scriptures and because our worldview, the, that hinge, that lens in which we look out and we interpret the world around us, because that fails to accurately perceive and evaluate the roles, the prerogatives, the being of God and man, there's no wonder that we have seen a consequential degradation in our salvation, at least, at least within the visible church. Peter has some things to say concerning our salvation. I hope and pray that as we go through this text, that we can learn to adopt a spirit of joy in our Christian walk. Because, really, God wants us to be joyful. He wants you and me to rejoice in our salvation, even when life stinks. And that is so important to us, just as it was important to Peter's original audience. If you remember, the early church, they were, they were ostracized, they were misrepresented, they were they were persecuted, they were harassed. After, after, the Nero, uh, after Nero burned Rome, they were imprisoned, they were whipped, they were beaten, they were fed to lions and executed. It's so important for God's people to see what God has to say about finding joy in this life when oftentimes it can be very hard to find joy. So let's see what Peter has to say concerning the joy in our salvation, shall we? Five things that we can look at to further consider our incredible position in Christ and the great blessings that are yours and that are mine because of our privileged position in Christ. Five reasons that we have to have joy even when hardship comes, especially when hardship comes as we await heaven. And these five points... I'll tell them to you now so that they can act as uh, hangers to, or uh, hooks to hang your thoughts on, as one of my professors used to say. They are the joy of a protected inheritance, the joy of a proven faith, the joy of a promised honor, the joy of personally knowing and trusting Jesus Christ, and the joy of a present, the very present salvation with that I'll read the text and then we'll we'll divide this up we're continuing at verse 6 reading through to verse 9 in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while if necessary you have been distressed by various trials So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. And full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So the first point we're looking at is the joy of a protected inheritance. And Peter begins when he says, in this you greatly rejoice. What is the this that he's talking about? What's the this that believers greatly rejoice in? Well, this goes back To verses 3 to 5, and there we looked at the amazing reminder that God, because he is a merciful God, he has begotten us, he's given us a second birth through regeneration, and that the intention of this second birth was to give you and to give me and to give all believers everywhere throughout time a living hope, a hope that is living, unchanging, unalterable, because it is, it is inherently tied, it is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ who is himself alive and will forever be alive. And because you and I are united to Christ through the Holy Spirit, we are made his brothers and sisters and we are made co-heirs. In that God has made us his own sons and his own daughters And by that right, by the right that you have been made his child, you have been graciously given the right to expect heaven. Isn't that good news? You can expect heaven because it has been made your inheritance. It is your future. It is what awaits you. It has been made your true home. Now, this was extremely relevant good news in the early church. Really until uh, 300-ish A.D. when Constantine normalized Christianity for the Roman Empire, there was a lot of persecution for the first three centuries of the early church. There was a great cost that came with professing the name of Jesus Christ. Christians were They were looked at with suspicion. They were ostracized. They were ridiculed. They were led, uh, which led to open persecution and imprisonment and execution. You can see this begin to develop in the book of Acts. As the apostle, first beginning with with Saul, he went around breathing threats to the church, the scripture tells us. And then after he became Paul and he goes around evangelizing, the Jews follow after him and they stir up trouble, saying that these Christians, they, they, they instigate trouble. And they, they tell people to rebel against the, the emperor and they, they cause up strife. And so open persecution, imprisonment and even execution became a reality for many in the early church. I see the light. People who listen to the recording are like, what's he talking about? Now, Christ taught these truths, which would have been startling and sobering to those who heard them. He taught on this. When he talked about the cost of discipleship and, and what it meant to be his disciple, at the time in his public ministry when he was becoming very popular with the crowds, he told them, he told anyone who wanted to associate, anyone who wanted to follow him, uh, he says in Matthew sixteen twenty-four, Mark eight thirty-four, Luke nine twenty-three. In three of the four canonical gospels, he says, uh, he says that he was saying to them all, "If anyone wishes to come after me, what must he do?" He must deny himself. He must take up his cross on Sunday morning from 10 to noon. No, no. He must take up his cross daily and follow me. And in Luke fourteen twenty six to 27, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever so does not Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then verse 33 he adds, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. So it speaks to the high cost that the early church associated with following Jesus. We know that our own flesh is against us. Sometimes our friends and family can turn against us. Sometimes our employers can turn against us. Sometimes, for for Christians, their, their own countrymen, their own state can turn against them. That is a reality the church has experienced since its inception. In its totality, the world is not happy that you have become a Christian. It hates you. The Lord said in John fifteen, eighteen and nineteen, if the world hates you, you know that it had hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore because of this, the world hates you. So we we consider it a blessing and a gift from God when we have ease, when we have pleasantries and happiness happiness in this life. But the truth is if we go through life unprepared, we, the truth is we go through life unprepared for the Christian walk. If we imagine that following Christ means our lives will be easy. Imagining your life will be easy is a fantasy. Fantasy. This world and all the pain and the hardship and the trouble that you experience, that you can experience because of your identity in Christ, that reminds us that this is not our true home. It is not the fullness of your reality. It is not the final word on your life. Paul says in Colossians 3, 3, that your life is hidden with Christ, not here but in heaven. And there's coming a day when, though the world does not see it now, though we can be mocked and ridiculed, persecuted, imprisoned, executed, there is a day that it will be revealed. This world, Though this world hates us, though the devil accuses us, though the flesh hinders us, those powers can do all they can do to make us suffer but the reality is and this is the glorious truth the hardest part of our salvation the fact and this is which is the most miraculous that the reality that you have been made an entirely new creature made in the image of Christ you have been regenerated you have who you who were once enemies of Christ have now been made his friends we have been reconciled we who were once alienated we have been brought near we who have been who were spiritual beggars and blind and naked and destitute we who were orphans we have been made well and rich and endowed and we have been made heirs of the almighty heirs of heaven and that which has been promised to you by your heavenly father that has is is being powerfully guarded it is being reserved for you under the watchful eyes of heaven and you are being until the day that you obtain it till you take possession of it you all are being powerfully guarded by the might and strength of god himself until the day that you acquire it in that you rejoice. In this you rejoice. You and I rejoice in the reality that our conditions in this life are not an indication of our position before God. We rejoice in that. Nor are they an indication as to what our conditions will be in the rest of eternity. We rejoice in because there is in our weakness in the degradation of our bodies over time in the turmoil that we see around us in politics in the brokenness of this world we, we see we, we come to the realization that this world cannot and, and and not by man's own might or will this this world cannot become heaven this world cannot become a utopia man cannot turn earth in heaven heaven and we've seen you open up the history books you can see many men who have tried to do that we rejoice because God has been exceedingly gracious and merciful to promise to bring heaven down to earth and as believers in Christ as those who are united to him we are promised an inheritance in that heavenly reality in this we rejoice Now let's look at this word rejoice it's it's a strong word it speaks to being very joyful overly joyful exceedingly joyful like super mega hyper joyful I mean you 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 know I used to be I used to be I used to have joy when I got the new GI Joe toy but imagine the joy that a mother has after carrying her baby for 9 months and after hours and hours and hours without an epidural imagine that joy when when that baby finally comes and 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 all the sorrows of of carrying and 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 of childbirth just vanish because of the joy that a life has been brought into the world imagine the joy after six hard years of war, after thousands upon thousands of lives being lost, imagine the joy in 1945 when the world heard that the war, that the great World War II had finally come to an end. Joy is strong. Joy is powerful. And joy is thematic in this verse. Let's take a second just to see... What the Bible, how the Bible describes joy. Luke 15 is really a chapter that talks about the joy of heaven in the salvation of lost sinners. Luke 15, verses 4 to 7, we're told about the parable of the lost sheep where the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes in search of the one that wanders off. And when he found it, When he finds it, what does he do? He, look in verse 6, he rejoices. And he invites his friends and neighbors to rejoice with him. In the same way, what does Jesus say in verse 7? There is joy in heaven when one sinner is saved. In verses 8 to 10, we're told the parable of the lost coin where a woman has ten, loses one and lights a lamp, which tells us this is maybe this happened during the night. Maybe this woman values her this coin so much that she's not even going to sleep. She's going to stay up all night, tear the house apart, limb from limb, until she finds that coin. She lights a lamp and she sweeps the whole house and she searches carefully until she finds it. And when she does find it, she just sticks it in her pocket, goes back to bed. No, she invites her friends over to rejoice. And Jesus says, likewise, there is joy in heaven among the angels of God when even one sinner is saved. And the most the most uh, popular of, of these stories comes in verses 11 to 32, where we are told the familiar parable of the lost son, or you may have heard it as the, the prodigal son, the boy who arrogantly and presumptuously he demands his inheritance from his father who the inheritance of being something you get when your parent dies and the the arrogance is seen that his father's not dead yet because you don't go, you don't go ask a dead person for the inheritance early but he asks he demands it and he goes off to a faraway land and he wastes it away and Upon realizing that he's the fool, he comes back home with his tail between his legs. In abject humiliation, he begs to be a servant so that at the very least he can have food to eat. And we are told that the father, being a compassionate man, being a merciful man, he, because he has an abundance of joy when he sees his son, that his son who, he, who was as good as dead, His son is alive and he's back home. In an overabundance of joy, he immediately welcomes his son back. And he calls everybody to rejoice with him. Because his son, who was as good as dead to the family, is now alive again. What was lost was now found. And the joy of the father and the salvation of his lost son, it illustrates the joy of our Heavenly Father when you and I are made his children, when we are taken from being dead in the trespasses of our sins, and we are made alive together in Christ. Joy, I, 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 I read that, or I went through that to show you that joy, when the Bible talks about it, joy has weight to it. Joy has some stock to it. It is Joy is something that is well-moored in the soul, it ha, joy has an, has anchors, and we can see in contrast to happiness what joy isn't. See, happiness happiness is this nice, positive, feel-good feeling that we get when your circumstances, when your immediate circumstances are good and pleasurable. Happiness comes and goes. Sometimes we learn as we grow, that it can come and go quite quickly, a little too quickly. Around every corner of happiness, I think, lays the inevitable reality that eventually you'll need to move on. Whatever the shiny thing is that you got, it will eventually become dull. The strong thing that you just had to buy will break. The new thing will get old Happiness is only held in the moment and sometimes that moment is exceedingly fleeting. But joy, joy is something that is fixed. Joy looks beyond your immediate circumstances. Now, here's where the contrast becomes practical. Happiness can, you can't have happiness in the midst of trial. You can't have happiness in the mix in the midst of suffering. Peter isn't telling his hurting people to be happy. Think positive thoughts. Feel good about yourself and give yourself a big hug. You one cannot be happy in the midst of suffering, but one can have joy. You can have joy even On your darkest day. Because eventually that dark day. Will pass. Joy looks. To the person and the being of God Almighty. And says. It doesn't matter. How gloomy your day is right now. The creator of heaven and earth. Has a bright tomorrow for you. And until that day comes. Your God is standing with you. Your God is cares about you your God is concerned about you and until that day comes he will not abandon you that's what joy does in the heart and the mind of the Christian in the face of weakness joy reminds you that you will be made strong in Christ that there is coming a day where every tear will be wiped away Where you will no longer experience sorrow. There's a day coming where we will no longer struggle. Where we will no longer suffer. Joy reminds the poor that the days of his poverty are numbered. Joy reminds the lame that one day he will walk. To the deaf, joy proclaims that he will hear. To the homeless, joy Says that there is a home within God's heavenly mansion that is being fashioned just for Him. Joy shouts to the guilty sinner that His sins and trespasses have been wiped clean, and there's coming a day where guilt and shame will have no place in your heart. I think perhaps the most vivid time the most real time that i've felt joy in the most profound time i think is when we go is when we experience death of a loved one because when when a fellow believer dies because in no other circumstance does the sting of death become so painful it is a sobering Painful realization that life is short. And in that moment, we feel incredible sorrow. Why? Because we've lost something that we value. But in that moment, you know that because they stood in Christ, you know that it is better for them. You, We know that. We know that. And so that that is... I think how the uh, the vivid way in which joy works in us. You can't be happy, but you can be joyful in trial. That is the joy. The joy of a protected inheritance. Second, we look at the joy of a proven faith. In verses 6 to 7. You rejoice in this, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Now, Peter turns to a source of joy that the believers become more aware of, I think, the longer they walk with Jesus and the longer that we fellowship with one another. And that's the joy that they see. The joy that they have when they see the fruit of their faith made evident in their life through trial and hardship. There are four things I want to point out about how we can be encouraged when God allows us to go through trial. Two things. Wait. Sorry, I lost my place. Okay, four, four things that I want to point out, and, and it's important to take these into consideration. Because when we, when we go through trial, what are the two things that we typically think? We, we typically ask, what did I do to deserve this, and what do I do to get out of it? Right? That, that's what happened to Job. When, 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 Job when, when Job went through the ringer, his friends come around, and they go, what did, what did you do, Job? What did you do? And after he professes his innocence... His wife comes along and says, I don't know what you did, but I can tell you what you can do to get out of this. Just curse God and die. At least then you would know that you did something wrong. So it's, 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 it's important to take some things into consideration about how and why we suffer so that we can be prepared to suffer. The first thing that Peter points out is that the troubles of the Christian are temporary. The troubles of the Christian are temporary. Peter says it's for a little while that you are distressed by various trials. They are but for a season. They are but for a season. That means a world of difference when the hardship you're in, when it appears like it's more than we can handle, right? Whatever you're in, it's just for a season. And there are some horrible situations that we can go through some of it some of it some of them we've already gone through circumstances that really just they blindside us on some idle weekday and they bring crisis into your life things that we are just not prepared for things that catch crises that catch us off guard and sometimes these crises and the effects of these crises they last for a day sometimes a week sometimes a month sometimes a year or longer There are some forms of suffering that we will have to endure for the rest of our lives. But, you know, I have some good news. The longest you you will ever have to endure your time of hardship is the remainder of your life on earth. Isn't that good news? (laughs) I can't seem to recall any hardship that a believer has ever endured that followed them to the grave. There's coming a day when each of us is ushered into eternity, and when we take that step, everything that afflicts us here and now, we leave behind. Your suffering is temporary. The second thing is that troubles come if they are necessary. Trials and hardship and suffering as a Christian come when they serve a purpose in your life as a Christian. God in his wisdom he uses hardship to he uses hardship that afflicts us whether whether they be the evil uh, schemes or the machinations of of man or maybe even the natural consequences of our own sinfulness God uses all manner of suffering to humble us to discipline us to wean us off of our worldliness to point us to heaven to prepare and to to prepare and equip us to comfort and to minister to others who are suffering to build to refine and to strengthen your spiritual character suffering when it is designed by God suffering does great and wonderful things and that's something i think we can only accept by faith because the flesh doesn't want to hear that when, when, when the flesh is subjected to suffering, the flesh wants out. So I'm not saying the, that we should have the smug look on our face when bad stuff happens. You know, I just got in a car wreck. Yay! It's growing time, spiritual growing time, right? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. But we can rejoice knowing that there is no trial that God cannot, in His wisdom and in His strength, use. To produce goodness for you. Third. Troubles produce distress. And you may be asking. Why are we rejoicing in that? Well. Peter uses this word to acknowledge. Uh, one simple thing about suffering. That I think. We have to know when we're dealing with someone. Whose world is falling apart. Suffering. Is painful. Trials. Are painful and I think we've all had that time when we were when we were the one suffering when we were the one who needed to be comforted and someone comes along and they mean well but they just completely lack empathy in in, in their attempt to comfort you they just don't understand and you almost wish they just didn't say anything at all when Peter, is writing to these beloved people. Remember, most likely these are his former congregants who have been scattered. When Peter is writing to these beloved people, as their pastor, he's saying, I know it hurts. I know it's hard. I know that you have grief and that you're dealing with a lot of things in your persecution. I know that some of you may be May have been, may be being killed. I know it's real. I know that that you have troubles on your in your soul. I know that at times like that, it's easy. It can be tempting to doubt the nearness and the goodness of your God when we when you are subjected to fear and worry and anxieties and sorrow and disappointment. I think the Holy Spirit inspired Peter Wright to add that little detail. To remind Christians that God is not oblivious to the harshness and the sadness that our trials bring in our life. We have a good Savior who Himself has borne our griefs and He knows how to sympathize and how to comfort comfort us in our trials. And that is worth rejoicing over. That is worth rejoicing over. Fourth, and this is going to lead into the to the third to the third main point is that there is a refining of your faith in trials there's a refining of your faith in trials peter says so that your faith may be proven now this isn't this word for proof it's not like the you know you're trying to determine is it or isn't it and here's the evidence that it is or that it isn't this this word proof it's a it's it's actually like a blacksmithing term it it is. Uh, it's, it speaks to the, the refined residue when mel- metals were being smelted. So it, it's not something being questioned. It's something that's being tempered. It's something that's being strengthened and refined and purified. And just as gold is put into the fire so that all the less valuable bits would float to the top and be scooped away so that you have a more valuable sample of gold. God allows us to be tested so that our faith might be refined, so that our faith might be made stronger, more pure. Biblically speaking, we understand that God gave us in the faith in the first place, so he knows that we have it. And he wants to refine it and to bring it out. And that faith, which endures the refining, it makes you and me stronger. And it makes our faith greater. And to God, faith is more valuable than precious, precious gold. Knowing that there is a purpose and a, an end and a goal in our suffering, that's worth rejoicing over. Amen? So, now, that this leads into point three the joy of promised honor this is a, a development of the last thought what is God's purpose in refining your faith of removing that dross those those less valuable bits in your mind and your heart and your faith Peter tells us that your faith is refined or or it, it's proven or refined so that middle of verse seven, it may be found to result in praise, and glory, and honor, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, just at, you think about the athlete. He's the athlete is driven to exercise and discipline himself because one day he, he hopes to receive a what? A medal. A farmer is driven to plant and sow and cultivate the ground so that one day he might reap a harvest. And the soldier, he trains and he trains and he trains so that whenever he does go to battle, he's prepared. So, too, God gives the Christian a motivation to have his faith refined in the fires of trial. And, and this is what's surprising. This is, not, this is not the praise and the honor and the glory that will be given to Christ but it's the, glory, it's the praise and the glory and the honor that is given to you. And that's amazing. This is, this is something that is being given to you by Christ himself. You think back to the parable of the talents. How does Jesus respond to the faithful? He commends them. He rewards them. Remember he says, well done, Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And in Second Timothy 4, 7-8, Paul, which is, this is possibly the last thing among the last words that the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And Paul in Romans 2.29, he also says that those who have faith, those who are the inward Jews who are touched by the Spirit of God, he says their praise is not from men. Their praise is from God. There is a divine commendation there is a divine reward for faith. There is a glory and a praise and an honor awaiting you who stand in Jesus Christ and who wait for his appearing. That's that's worth rejoicing in. That is good news. The scripture tells us that God affirms that that, that, that God loves righteousness and justice he approves it he commends it when it's done and when you and i through our faith and good works when we demonstrate the righteousness of christ he is pleased and i'm not talking about our justification i'm not talking about that that initial act of being reconciled but when we when we become more and more like christ when we reflect christ likeness, God is pleased with us. And you reap up praise and commendation from your Heavenly Father who is absolutely delighted to see the image of Christ in you. Fourth, we look at The joy of personally knowing and loving Jesus. Now here, Peter lays down two things that are absolutely crucial in developing joy in our Christian walk. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Love and trust. Two absolutely crucial ingredients for any meaningful relationship. Let's let's talk about these two words. Love. You may have heard a, a description on the four words for love in the Bible. This is agapao or agape. This is a love of the will. This is choosing to love another. This is a love that's not dependent on anything they do. This is a love that is not dependent, it's not conditional on anything they've done or anything they are doing or anything they might do to you. This is a love that does not look at what you can get before you decide to dispense it. It is a selfless love. And it's the best word to describe the kind of love that God consistently shows to mankind. And what's interesting is it's the first uh, fruit mentioned in the fruit of the spirit in Galatians five. Now think about that. Biblical love being a fruit of the spirit means it's not something that man, that the natural man produces. Love, biblical love, is not something the carnal man. It's not something the flesh produces. It is something that the spirit of God produces in man. And Peter is affirming to these precious people, he, say, he says that you you love him. You have been loving him. He's affirming to them that they have been loving God. And what's the implication of that? If it's a fruit of the Spirit, and they've been doing it, that's telling them that God has been in them producing this fruit. And that's an encouraging reminder that in the midst of their trials... God has been there with them the whole time, producing his fruit. And he hasn't abandoned them. That's something we need to be reminded of when we go through trial. When all, when all it seems is the crisis that is right in front of us, and we can't seem to see anything else. Now, this other, the, the other thing Peter commends them for is their belief, which is it's the same word for faith, Only uh, Peter turned it into a verb. This is is another one of the fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness. This speaks to the trust and the confidence that one has in God. That belief then produces fruit in the person's life, in, in his action, in his conduct. And again, this is a fruit of the Spirit. This is something the natural man does not and cannot produce. So it's an encouraging reminder to these folks to hear their pastor commend them for the fruit of God in their lives. Despite their trials. Despite their hardships. And, that's, and, and what is also remarkable is something that Peter says concerning their love and their faith. He says that they love him and they believe in him despite what? Not seeing him. Now this is something I think made Peter stop and marvel at the work of the Spirit of God in these people. I mean, if, if you remember, Peter walked with Christ for how long? Three full years. Three years of waking up and seeing Jesus every day, going to sleep, waking up. Say, hey, there's Jesus again. Three years of being discipled and trained and equipped for ministry by God in the flesh. And what happened at the end of those three years? Peter, the leader of the twelve, the rock, rocky, denies Christ three times. After seeing Jesus, and he, I forgot to add, Jesus. uh, Peter saw the miracles. uh, Peter saw Christ glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. And his faith, in a moment of crisis, Peter's love and faith failed. Now, mercifully, he was restored, which which was good news. But I think this made this realization that these people who had not seen Christ in the flesh made Peter marvel. They could only rely on the Word of God and their lives thereafter are marked by a consistency of love and faithfulness towards Christ. And I think Peter looks at that and concludes this has to be a work of the Spirit of God in them, because they, they are doing what I could not do in my moment in my moment of failure. And I think he's I think he's marveling at them. I think he's at a loss of words because he describes their joy, their their rejoicing as being what? Inexpressible. You think back to when you were in college and you were writing papers and you're typing stuff and you don't like the you know, that's not really good enough, and so you backspace and you type it again and you're like, No, that's that's not justice to what I'm trying to say. And I think that's Peter, and he's like inexpressible. That that's a good way to describe it. It's it's inexpressible. Words can't express the reality, the con- the affirmation that God is working in these precious, precious people. Peter says it's inexpressible, and he knows it's a result of divine work. So he al- he also adds it's it's glorious. It is full of glory, and that's a comforting joyful reminder for all believers when we can look back on our life and we can see the fruit of the Spirit of God in us in seeing especially when we look back and we remember what we were how we once hated God we hated His Word and His Law we hated Christ but now we love and believe in Him there's joy in that the last point is the joy of, of a present salvation. Now, this word salvation can mean different things depending on how it's used. I think in our circles, we have in mind that we are saved from the consequences of sin, that in the day of judgment, we will be found forgiven. We will not be condemned to hell, but we will instead be found worthy of heaven, and that is certainly true, and there is joy in that, but that's not the whole picture. Peter, says, Peter describes this as a present reality. He says that you that you are obtaining, not you will obtain, but you are obtaining the outcome of Of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, this word for obtaining it doesn't mean something you just, you know, you're just walking along and you just, oh, that that's pretty. Maybe you pick it up because you want to keep it, or or you can just disregard it and keep on walking. This word for obtaining speaks of something that you've worked for, so you deserve it. Something that you've earned, something that you've merited. It's like a wage. You are expected to take it to receive it the point is is our present salvation is not something to overlook or to leave behind and i think this is this this was uh this happened in 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 my life growing up because i can remember the gospel being something when i would hear the gospel Oh, it's, that's something in the rearview mirror. I mean, I went, I went to chapel. I, I accepted Christ. I did the altar call. I grew up in the Christian church. Why are we talking about the forgiveness of sins and 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 and, and Jesus? I mean, there's other things to talk about. The gospel was something that was in the rearview mirror. We've passed that. It's so elementary. Now, to understand what our present salvation means, I think it's important to consider what it is that we are presently being saved from not just the day of judgment but consider what sin does to us presently sin as it relates to the carnal nature of the natural man sin is this inclination to exalt and to serve and worship the self instead of God and its its rebellion it is a trespass of God's person and character and position and practically, sin is an enslavement. Sin is an enslavement. Because once sin sinks its teeth in, it doesn't let go. And it continues to devour. And it's a poison that once it, once it enters the bloodstream, it, does, it finds its way to the heart and it does its irrevocable work. The biblical understanding of your present salvation is that you are not saved from your oopsies. Sin in, in our in our culture, sin has become culturally defined terms. What what may be a sin now may not be a sin in twenty or thirty years. Sin sins are sin is just a poor just poor decision. It's a poor choice. It's an oopsie, a mistake. The biblical understanding. of of your salvation is that you are not saved from your oopsies, your bad decisions, or your poor choices. We were dead in the trespasses of our sins. We were that prodigal son. We forsook our father, as it were, and we wasted our lives on prodigal and wasteful and idolatrous and self-destructive living because that's what we were. That We were walking in our sinfulness because that is what was natural to us. And we've been spared from that. We have been spared from that. Isn't there a joy in our present salvation in knowing that God has reached down to us and he has achieved a permanent change in us? And I think any of you married couples if you got married before salvation i'm sure you can look at the at the difference at the practical difference of a christian marriage and see and see that you can see the fruit of the spirit of god in your marriage god is rightly angry at sin, but he's joyful when a sinner is saved from his sin and when he's made right with him. You think about that love of the, of the compassionate father when he saw his son return home. Jesus tells us that is how, how our heavenly father felt towards you when you were reconciled to him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through Christ, your, the record of your rebellion is wiped away like footprints in the tide. That is how God, the the joy with which the Father wanted to celebrate, that is how God feels towards his children when they are made right with him. And we ought to rejoice in the truth concerning our salvation, considering that he planned it, he achieved it, and he applied it to us. We ought to rejoice that God in his sovereignty allows us, he only allows us to be tested When it is necessary for our good, knowing that our trials are merely temporary, knowing that God sympathizes with your suffering, knowing that there is a purpose in sight, we ought to rejoice that our trials work to produce a reward for us. We ought to rejoice knowing that there is praise and honor and glory awaiting us that will come from the lips of God himself. We ought to rejoice knowing that the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit confirms that God has never abandoned us, that he's with us, that he's in us and working in us and sustaining us. And lastly, we ought to rejoice in the life of sinful enslavement that we have been spared from. There's a lot to be joyful in our salvation, is there not? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our our great salvation. I thank you that you have seen fit to bestow mercies and blessings and privileges upon us. Things that we could never earn or merit or deserve, but you've given them to us on the basis that we are united to your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the wonderful promises that you give us, the promises of heaven. We thank you for the joys that you give us. Help us to see with greater clarity with greater perception, the beauty and the goodness in Jesus Christ, and help us to rejoice in him. Amen.